This week on a lively experiment, gasoline prices reach historic levels here and across the country. Can anything be done to contain the cost? And the exodus of directors from the McKee administration continues. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with their perspective, Billy Hunt, chairman of the Libertarian Party of Rhode Island. Jim Vincent, president of the Providence branch of the NAACP. And Bob Walsh, executive director of the National Education Association, Rhode Island. Welcome to this week's Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us. You will likely hear the phrases pain at the pump and Putin's price hike a lot in the coming days and weeks as the price of gasoline seemingly rises by the hour. It is a complicated equation how we got to this point, but consumers are looking for relief that may not yet come for some time. Billy, let me start with you. One proposal has been Senator Jessica De La Cruz is talking about suspending the state uh, gas tax. That's 34, 35 cents. The federal is maybe 18. So something, but when gas is at four going on $5 a gallon, I'm not sure. It's pretty much like uh, Biden uh, releasing the strategic reserves uh, a few uh, months ago. It really is not going to do a lot to uh, stem the tide of the increasing gas prices. But, you know, it's time to evaluate the gas prices in Rhode Island and uh, the taxes that we pay on a gallon of gas. We're 10 cents higher than our neighbors. Uh, there's no reason why we should have a higher tax burden than our neighbors do. Uh, there was, you know, talk about how this goes back to uh, the, the banking crisis and everything like that. Uh, same with our sales tax. Uh, so this is a larger conversation about the tax burdens that Rhode Islanders pay, which is higher than what our neighboring states are. Um, and it's not usually discussed uh, when it comes to the legislation that a lot of these people are, are, are pushing. Um, you know, the other instance with the gas prices are is uh, as the gas prices get higher, this is one of the uh, the objectives of the environmentalist groups is to make the green energy more uh, competitive with the fossil fuels. So this is something that seems to be part of their plan. We'll get to that in a minute. If Representative Hunt were the first libertarian in the General Assembly right now, would you advocate repealing that because that's a $120 million nut that you have to fill? I mean, of course you would uh, go ahead and do it. I mean, the bill proposed right now talks about using some of the COVID relief funds to, uh, to backfill that. It's only supposed to be a temporary measure if I... Uh, yeah, not sure you can do that. Well, even so, um, you know, again, this is uh, uh, how much did our, our budget increase uh, you know, since the, the pandemic started? This is something that, uh, you know, we can find in the budget. We can make it work. No, I wouldn't do it at all in terms of repealing the Rhode Island gas tax. No, uh, for two reasons. One, uh, people are not really feeling the pain of the pump as much as even I thought they would. When you think of 80 percent of, of Americans are willing to pay higher gas taxes in order for us to not deal with Russia, they know it's going to be higher if they cut off Russia, which Biden yesterday, President Biden did, but yet still 80% of the country feels that they're willing to make that sacrifice at the pump uh, to make sure that Russia is not capitalizing in terms of tax, uh, that those dollars in terms of oil. And the second reason is that about one third of that gas tax helps fund RIPTA. So the people that don't have transportation would be punished. And certainly we wouldn't want to punish them in terms of having something uh, uh, in the way of uh, them getting to hospitals and schools and work and, and play and whatever else. Uh, so you can't uh, take away that kind of major funding for RIPTA by repealing uh, the Rhode Island gas tax. It makes no sense. 
Uh, I like Jim's answer better than Billy's. Um, that you have to make up the money. We're not going to use this. Um, this is an international crisis. We have a six hundred million dollar state budget right now. How about some of that? The state budget first uh, surplus. Surplus. I'm sorry. Oh surplus. right. Oh yeah. Oh, not in, the, in the short term, Jim. Okay, we can do whatever you want with the state surplus if it provides some temporary relief to folks. But I'm closer to Jim in the answer. You have to realize the long term implications of every bit of tax policy you have. We fund RIPTA, yes, and I, and I agree with Billy's statement and disagree with his conclusion. We want a, a greener economy. We want as many people as wish to to ride the buses, take public transportation. Uh, we want to encourage the use of alternative fuels and an alternative sources of energy. But right now what we're dealing with is most of the increase in the price of gasoline has nothing to do with the 30-something uh, cent uh, Rhode Island tax or the 18-cent federal tax. It has to do with supply and demand and what's happening in an international crisis. And I think Jim's correct. People recognize we're in a crisis. That doesn't mean they're not suffering real pain, not only to fill their gas tanks, but to pay more for all the supplies that use transportation to get there. And if there is state or federal short-term relief that can put money in people's pockets just like we did during the pandemic, I'm all for looking at that. But you can't spend the same money two or three or four times. If you're going to take something out of the uh, state surplus to make up to the uh, to rip to the funding they would lose from the gas tax, you're going to realize then you're not funding something else. And we have a lot of funding priorities. Well, I, I mean, this is something that uh, I don't know where the 80% of uh, Americans are, are in favor of uh, in or not at opposed to having the increased gas taxes. They haven't seen the increases yet. Um, you know, back in uh, February, we had a 30% uh, raise from last year, and now we are, I'm sorry, there's a increase in the home heating oil was 259 last year. And, and now we're looking at uh, prices well over four or $5 a gallon. And when you're going to fill up your, uh, your oil tank in your house, and you're looking at a, a double uh, fuel bill in the middle of the winter when people, when 64% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, you know, when we're talking about getting money directly into the pockets of the people who need it the most, the people who are uh, struggling during these times and who need, uh, you know, fares for RIPTA and everything else. This is a way to inject that money and give that money directly to the people who are suffering. Now he's right talking now. like a Democrat. See, we've been here for five minutes. <laughs> well, now he's well, on well I got to tell you, the, left, the libertarians will surprise you. Sometimes they go this way, sometimes they go this way. I am well, you know what? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe we can compromise on this. The 18% federal gas tax, that could, maybe we can deal with that. So that could be some relief there. But certainly, you know, when I fill up my tank, Eighteen cents is a drop in the bucket. Well, drop in the bucket. Right? If you want to do something, do that, but don't hurt the the, the local the local folks here. And sixty four dollars is what it would take at four dollars and twenty five cents a gallon to fill up a fifteen gallon car. That's sixty four dollars. We're talking about maybe four or five dollars. And I think that's you know that's money. That's not something to sneeze at in terms of a saving. But I think that's why people you know are willing the eighty percent or the seventy five percent in the other poll are willing to have increased gas prices for something like to not fund Russia in terms of their oil. But the, the other thing is, we're two weeks into this, all right? <laughs> so this is going to go a lot longer. We're not, you know, we don't have our troops dying. And look, I understand there's a whole philosophical wh whether we should go in or not, whatever. It, but I just, I find it funny with Americans. They're worried because their gas prices are going to go up, you know, whatever, 30%. Now, if that continues to go on for a long time, then I think you've got to look. But we're two weeks into this, right? Yeah. Well, my greatest frustration in this is at the federal level, uh, it's only the Democrats that are talking about giving relief on the federal um, gas tax. And none of the Republicans in the United States Senate will sign on to the bill um, because 
they want to use higher gas prices as an anti-Biden, anti-democratic message. So that, in the old days, there would have been some level of bipartisan cooperation on this. Now, at the state level, a Republican state senator who's running for Congress, uh, Jessica De La Cruz, has proposed giving release relief on the gas tax, but she's going to run into the same buzzsaw in her congressional race. That first vote is the worst vote message that you're going to go down to Washington and find out you're not going to get that level of cooperation. Do you think this situation helps or hurts getting toward, not the Green New Deal, because we know that's a little you know, extreme, but toward climate change? You know, are people saying, wow, we need to start drilling more oil immediately because I'm paying $5 at the pumps and, you know, screw the electric vehicles, or this is a really a, is a reinforcement that we need to be moving in that direction. What do you think well, I mean, this, this is doing? Elon Musk is uh, tweeting that uh, we should be producing more oil in the United States, and he has the vested interest of uh, being one of the largest electric vehicle producers in the country. So if he's uh, advocating for increasing our domestic production, I mean, that just shows that uh, it, we're not ready there. We're not yet there with the electric technology, whether it be for cars, whether it be for landscaping equipment. Uh, you know, this is the type of thing where uh, this, they're talking about Putin, uh, Putin's price hike. This is Biden's blunder. Let me tell you what wastes a lot more electric, uh, fuel and creates a lot more damage to the environment is a war that's a result of the inter, uh, the mingling of the 2014 color revolution of Biden administration and installing his son in a, a million dollar a year uh, job with an oil uh, refining company. This is the, the result of all of that inter, uh, you know, uh, inter play of Ukraine uh, by uh, the Biden and Obama administration. Well, that's a whole nother. Yeah. We could now you sound like Link Chafee. <laughs> you really get me on all sides of it. To answer your question, uh, I think that the more uh, people are not driving or they're out of cars, of course, it's going to help in terms of the environment, in terms of climate uh, climate uh, catastrophe that we're, go we're heading in, like it or not. It's very frustrating, just as we could get out of the house, it costs more to go someplace, and we can all agree on that. But I also think <laughs> it's like somebody who has to lose four or 500 pounds. It's a day at a time, you can't, there's no quick solution, and I'm not sure a lot of people are, are ready to make that sacrifice. They're like, well, the, the mountain seems so high to climb, let's put that off to the next generation, or at least another year or two, because we're worried. I, do, you, do you feel that way, Bob? Or? Oh. That, that Not you, but I mean that people view it that way. I think that there are a lot of forces driving the messaging on this very narrow issue of the gas, cost of gas and the gas taxes, derivative of that, when there's a much bigger issue at stake with what's going on in Ukraine. Let me, st <laughs> let me stay with you, um, and let's, we, you know, we're going to be talking about this over the next couple of weeks. We have a lot of Rhode Island issues to cover. Um, uh, Dan McKee has lost another director, uh, Wamazetta Jones. She said she's going back to the Midwest. She came in in 2019, so under Raimondo, understandable. Janet Coit has left. Um, Dr. Alexander Scott, it, look, you've watched a lot of administrations come and go. Is this the natural ebb and flow, or is this well, something he should be concerned there's, about? Um, if you look at this as the end of the Raimondo administration, generally there's an ebb and flow that goes before people see their opportunities. There are select opportunities where uh, Director Jones said she wants to go back to the Midwest and be closer to her family, and we take people at their word. Sometimes there are uh, because uh, Governor McKee replaced Governor Raimondo, and there might be individual conflicts where people say, ah, I was going to stick it out to the end, but I'll go now. But it's, um, this, um, this does not surprise me. And it's particularly hard in a transition time where really you only have a year and a half in office to get folks to make that long-term commitment you want in directors. Whoever, uh, you know, Governor McKee getting 
uh, elected or reelected, depending on how you want to phrase it, or one of his Democratic opponents or the other potential likely next governors, they'll have a four-year term and they'll get to do the full interview process and fill out a team. I think it's the normal ebb and flow. I think if you look at administrations over the years, you know, people uh, tend to leave. Uh, not everybody, but uh, some just leave because of more opportunities or family constraints or whatever. But I'm particularly uh, concerned because we have two African-American women, Dr. Nicole Alexander-Scott and <coughs> Wamazetta Jones, who I felt did a tremendous job for both Gina Raimondo and for uh, uh, Governor McKee. So my concern is that. And um, However, uh, I am hearing that uh, uh, Colonel Manny is going to be taking a job possibly in South Kingston as the new town manager, and that will open up a spot for the first black colonel in Rhode Island State Trooper Did you history, have somebody in mind? Donnell Williams, who's the lieutenant colonel, the number two right now, who is a 26-year veteran, uh, a Marine Corps, uh, ex-Marine Corps veteran as well, a Marine Corps veteran, and he's uh, worked up from the ranks. I've known him from the time he was a sergeant. And I even Colonel Manny and I even talked about the fact that probably when he left, that that history would be made with having the first black state police colonel uh, after he, he leaves. Well, you called it on Melissa Long for Supreme Court, so well, maybe you'll I, go to for two. I asked Gina Ramondo to make history on her, and she did. I'm going to ask Governor McKee soon to make history on this, and I'm sure he will. What about the larger issue of the race? And so, Seth Magaziner, we haven't had you on since, a lot of you, yeah, since uh, all of this has been happening in CD2. Let me just get this on the record before I go to Billy. You're not running for CD2? I am not running for And you're CD2. not running for governor? No. All right. But I, ha I hesitated, though, right? <laughs> Bob, right. It, for those who don't know, Bob is retiring in August, so maybe if he had moved that up three or four months, he could have, from his NEA position. From my been, NEA position. Uh, the larger issue, Seth Magaziner moves over to CD2, and so now the jockeying begins. And as we ca we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, as we move into, dare I say, a post-pandemic era, what does McKee have to do? to stay on the course. Well, I think uh, just by the nature of Gene Armando keeping him out of the loop so much uh, while he was lieutenant governor, I think he didn't have a lot of choice but to keep the administration that was in place just to, you don't want to switch horses midstream or whatever the cliche is. But, um, you know, it, it, going forward, he's going to try to establish his own identity in this race. And uh, I think he's running on his record. And I, I think he's really looking to clean house and get people in the positions that uh, are going to uh, present the the image of him being a successful uh, response to the COVID pandemic, uh, leading us through uh, the recovery here in Rhode Island and, and putting out the APRA money. And I think that uh, just by the nature of some of the, uh, you know, perceived bickering that was going on in the administration with Dr. Nicole Alexander-Scott and uh, some of other things that were going on, uh, maybe he's looking to get some more friendlies in those positions, uh, which uh, would help him during the election season. So. Helena, folks, has a lot of money, not a lot of name recognition. Nellie Gorbea has run a pretty, I think, a pretty decent campaign that, you know, some people have said maybe that kind of forced magazine are out because the numbers weren't so good. Well, I got in trouble uh, with some of the candidates when I was on the show a few cycles ago saying good. Dan McKee was the front runner because Dan McKee was the front runner and Dan McKee is still the front runner. Um, I use Game of Thrones terminology when I discuss this informally. Dan McKee is king of the north and right now he's got the throne. So that's a pretty good combination of things to have going into the race. He's got the mayors of uh, North Providence and Johnston and Cumberland and Would they be considered uh, knights or were they kings of I think Bannermen, if we stick with the analogy, his Bannermen are rallying uh, around him and, and East Providence uh, I saw as well at his announcement. Even the Republican mayor of Cranston was in attendance. 
that's a big deal. That's a good start. And if we, I have not pulled the race, uh, but if we pulled the race, he's probably in that mid to high 30 range. But some of it's soft because people do not know him, despite being governor for a year, as well as they would have known Gina or someone who's been in office for a long time. That said, Nellie uh, Gorbea acquitted herself wonderfully well as Secretary of State, and she's going to be the, uh, I'm switching analogies now, three yards in a cloud of dust, and be there at the end and within one, you know, field goal or touchdown of being able to win a Democratic primary. It's hard to Helene is the unknown. Helene is, you know, she's got, uh, she's going to have the air war behind her because she's going to have enough money to get up on television and all the multimedia that you need now in modern campaigns early and often and tell her story. And I give her great credit. Uh, just the other day, she came out with a very comprehensive, extensive platform on education. Now, platforms don't win elections, but they certainly get the attention of the people who pay attention early to elections. We're going to have to put on the PBS website a little glossary of all of Bob's terms. So just to yeah, make yeah. sure they get clear <laughs> right, of the yeah, banner yeah. man. We'll do a little, we'll little transit. Well, we if you watch the show, you get the reference. Three clouds but, and some dust. Um, and it's not a big turnout, right? 130,000 votes. And give 10% to Matt Brown and the everybody else on the ballot. Uh, getting a plurality well, what's left. You know, I, I think not having a large turnout kind of cuts, it could cut either way. I think, you know, when you're the incumbent, you have the power of the incumbency, and the power of the incumbency is very powerful, especially now when you have all this other funds from the federal government going into it. Uh, he wasn't as known uh, a year ago because of the lieutenant governor's role, but I think he's been everywhere since, so I think he has the name and recognition. So to a certain extent, you know, he, I'm not saying he's the front runner, but I, I know historically the incumbents always have have a, a tremendous advantage. You don't see too many incumbents lose races. However, you know, you have other candidates that if they could get to a threshold of 25 or 30 percent, who knows? We've seen it before when, the, you know, there's been more than two or three people in a race. And in this case, there are five, because don't forget uh, Daniel, uh, Louis Daniel Munoz. Munoz as well, as well as uh, Matt Brown. So there's five candidates. So uh, if anybody can really mobilize their people in a small state, then who knows that there might be something uh, interesting happening. At it, the, it's a non-presidential year, but don't you think that CD2 race is going to bring some more people out to the polls because there will be a, a primary there, so you have more voters, at least in that district? I think that helps. Uh, that probably helps uh, the, uh, the, the the people that are that are running against the so-called incumbent because right. you, when you have more people, that's it's, it's yet to be determined. It's a split though because yeah. Republican primary is going to keep folks who could vote in either primary on the sidelines. Look right. at Cranston as an interesting. Oh, that's right. I'm case. sorry. It's a close. That's right. You have right. to decide. Right? Well, yeah, you can pick. If you're right. if you're yeah. um, an independent voter, you can exactly. choose either primary to vote on. Now, Cranston. Let's say hypothetically, the Republican mayor of Cranston likes Dan McKee, but he also likes. Alan Fung, his predecessor. So if you're an independent in Cranston and leans Republican, you're going to turn out in the Republican primary to help Alan Fung, not the Democratic primary to help Dan McKee. Conventional wisdom is that the lower the turnout, the, the better for the incumbent. So even if it was a higher turnout, that doesn't necessarily help Dan McKee. Uh, it won't be because of what, the dynamics that, that my friend Bob just said. But I think you got to be uh, you got to be watchful because Matt Brown he he's part of the progressives and they have uh, 50 people I think that they're running and you have uh, Louis Daniel Munoz he's uh, Puerto Rican a young dynamic person uh, from from Central Falls uh, as well as Nellie Gorbea, who's done an excellent job in her eight years as Secretary of State so it's, you got a lot of people that bring different things Helena uh, Bonanno folks does have money so it could be very interesting because you got five distinct different kinds of people it's going to be different kinds of races unpredictable but but to, to me and, and I'm from Boston so Boston politics it's always hard to beat the incumbent let's talk a little bit about getting back to normal mm -hmm. 
some of the mandates falling. It, you, that cheer you heard came from the uh, Hunt household oh, and, and many others. Um, schools getting back to normal life. I was I was pleasantly surprised this morning when I dropped my son off at daycare and I, I saw my the face of the daycare provider for the first time since uh, we've been taking him there. So that was <laughs> a, a very exciting thing for me. And um, it, it's amazing how. Uh, quickly, you know, when there's something else to distract the, the general population that we can turn the page on this and, and get back to normal. Like and, a war in uh, Ukraine. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and it kind of whiffs a little bit of the wag the dog type, uh, uh, you know, narrative here. But uh, that being said, uh, you know, here we are, we are transitioning from a pandemic to an endemic. Uh, we should get back to normal. There's no reason to be masking anymore. There's no reason to be requiring masks in our schools anymore, no matter where they are. Um, people, the vaccines are readily available. People can get them if they want to. Um, you know, and really, I think there needs to be a reckoning uh, for the people who have imposed these uh, these mandates and these unnecessary restrictions on uh, you know the populace in general, and uh, worst of all, the, the children in our school system who have been uh, the least uh, affected or the least at risk from uh, having adverse effects from this virus and who have been uh, had the worst effects as the uh, the cure was way worse for the disease. Well, there them. has been, I'll get to you in a second, <laughs> there has been a reckoning for some school committees. Yep. In Barrington, they were, they were on a, on a uh, recall. rush to recall. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you want to respond to Billy be. on that? Yeah, I mean, I like the first half of what he said. And then he went <laughs> well, here we go again. <laughs> went off into the hinterland. So you're a libertarian, right? I like about half of what they say. Um, there's no reckoning. We did exactly what science dictated and medicine dictated that we should do um, and more or less the timing that we should have followed on this. And there are places that still need masking. If you go to PPAC tonight and uh, go to that prom, you will have to wear a mask. What are you hearing from your membership about show. what's going on in the schools? Are um, most of the kids not wearing them now? Does it depend on the teachers? It depends on the district, depends on the classroom. Um, there are still some students who are more, or their parents are more comfortable having them masked. Uh, we're trying to make sure that the choices are respected on both sides. In my districts, we're the more suburban, higher vaccinated districts. It's less of an issue. Uh, I support the commissioner. There's a record, there's a headline for you in her decision in Providence because there's such a low community vaccination rate that they're keeping um, the students being masked. And a low rate doesn't mean no rate. I mean, this is like the old peanut allergy thing. If there's a kid in the class allergic to peanuts, you don't bring peanuts in. If you've got a low vaccination rate in the classroom, you still wear masks because that's, that's what that's, Dr. Ja says, not what some politicians But says. that's ridiculous <laughs> because even though the vaccination rate is lower in the urban school districts, the case rate is uh, is much lower than it is uh, in, in yeah, school districts that have look, the higher I, vaccination look, rate. You get Dr. Ja to say that and I'll say it's time to do it. I don't want to hear Billy's it from not hanging on every word Dr. I'm, I'm, I'm glad the commissioner has the masks uh, on the kids in Providence because of the vaccination. And CF, rate. too, because that's a state rule. Right. I mean, I, I want to take the politics out of it. I'm concerned about the kids, and not everybody has equal access to get the vaccines. That, that's just not true. And uh, so, you know, let's, let's deal with reality in terms of the fact that these kids have families and they're in dense populations. And I'm, I'm always going to err on safety. And, and a lot of kids want to have the masks on anyway uh, because they've gotten used to it. So it's more the parents' issue than the kids' issue. So you got to, like, sort all of that out, take politics out of it, and look at the look at health and Prov safety for the kids themselves. Providence Central Falls, uh, what percentage of the student population there has English as a second language and that is completely restricted by this mask mandate? And you're talking about an underserved uh, population. The scores in those districts are way at the bottom. If you're talking about the safety and the health and the well-being of the students, what about the future of them and how much of an impact this formative years of their life is going to affect them for the rest of their and, life? And I agree with everything you said, that, that these impacts are important. 
but I'd rather see them alive than dead. Well, that's, that's, the that's hyperbole. That's the, that's, that, they, well, they I mean, have, first of all, the, the people who have been this whole time talking about how much if we can save one life, if we can save one life, it's all been worth it. They're the same ones right now who are talking about sanctions in Russia, a no-fly zone which could bring us into World War III. If it could save one life, shouldn't we reduce all sanctions in Russia? Shouldn't we go ahead and concede to, to, to Putin? Like, this is, this is completely, uh, you, you're changing the story depending on what the I, I, I separate is. foreign policy from well, vaccination I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, but I am enjoying this, Billy, because usually I'm outnumbered. And when I talk about panel, lives, so I'm talking about the families that they go home to. I mean, I, I'm talking about the total community. That's what I'm talking about. And if it was me, I'm not going to. One life to me is too much. I mean, I'm not just thinking about, you know, one that's, life and versus that's two your, lives. That's your risk assessment. That's, right. that's a marginal decision that you've made based upon your risk tolerance. Absolutely. Not everybody has the same risk tolerance. Agreed. And, and when you mandate Agreed. this stuff, you take the choice away from the individual. All right. Well, make, as someone who's taken a lot of blame for these decisions and doesn't get to make any of them, let me again reiterate. I'm leaving this to the medical professionals. And when they say it, we say, okay, that's, that's a, what we uh, have. That's a cop-out. We don't have, no, tech, we don't, we don't have technocrats it's... running our government. We, hide, we elect political leaders to take the, advice from all of the, the concerned yeah. policies and make policy decisions. The, They've made the wrong policy decision. It's well, going to have an adverse effect on this thing, and there needs to be a record. Well, based on what? Based, based on upon the, the New York Times just basically put it. No, the New York Times just put out an article saying that the mandates and the response to the COVID response had little to no effect. And by the science, by right, the numbers. Hang on. I'm making an executive right. decision. No we got to do a quick outreach. We're going right. to do a li lively extra right. because there are a lot of school oh, issues there's and how appropriate that we have right, Bob right, Walsh right. here. So um, let's do this. Well, let's take a breath. Uh, let's start with either uh, outrage or kudo with you, Mr. Vincent. Okay, I'm going to go back to the outrages. I think the last time I was a uh, kudo. All right. Um, my outrage is um, something that happened three weeks ago in Minnesota in terms of a uh, sentencing of uh, Kim Potter who was the white officer who killed uh, 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 Dante uh, With the taser. With the taser. Uh, she, well, she thought it was a taser. She, and she, she killed, killed him with a gun. gun. Yeah, yeah. She thought it was a taser, 26-year veteran. Yeah. All right, we're making progress out here. You know, two steps forward, but one step back. You know, Ahmad Aubrey, uh, the three uh, defendants were guilty uh, twice, because now the federal uh, government has also made them get guilty of uh, a hate crime. Uh, in terms of George Floyd, uh, the three officers uh, are following Chauvin. Uh, they're guilty of, of some violations, and who knows what else is going to happen to them. So we got two steps forward. But the step back was when Kim Potter, uh, you know, was accused of manslaughter one and two, so the maximum for manslaughter one is 15 years. But with mitigating factors, you get seven. She cried, the judge cried, and she ended up with two years. Where also in Minnesota, you had Muhammad Noor, who accidentally, that's the judge's word, killed, killed, the, uh, killed a, a white woman, and he got third-degree murder in 12 years, which was thrown up by the Supreme Court of Minnesota, ended up getting five years, the maximum, and the judge said, hey, don't worry, on good behavior, you can get out early. No tears there. Jim just sucked up some of your time, so uh, you go, well, I'll, I'll raise your cooler. I, I, I'll fine. go quick. I'm doing a it's new feature outrage. just for you. Technical fouls, because you're going to go to, uh, <laughs> uh, go to ACC. The well, yeah. It's like an outrage, but yeah. technical foul. But it always comes with a kudu, too. Great job by Bryant. Uh, you know, Bulldogs going to the yeah, NCAA. Technical foul for putting <laughs> the visiting parents in front of the students. <laughs> not a good idea. Like you couldn't see good. that coming. How long have right, they been right, drinking? I, I and, but but and it takes away. So you're not you're not helping. Anyone, maybe if they had banned the away from the team. If they had banned the nips, maybe that would. Yeah, uh, and I like the technical foul thing because I wanted to give one to Chafee for talking about Putin, and I have a few others. But we'll <laughs> see. you got 30 seconds. So Jim, uh, you probably <laughs> covered this extensively, but the TF Green runway expansion was uh, back in what 2013. It didn't get 
completed in 2017. It was over $120 million. Just today, or yes, this week, they announced that they got our first transcontinental flight from uh, Providence to LAX, and it's on a brand new Airbus that does not require the longer runway. Why the heck did we spend all this money to expand our runway? And this is just a perfect example of government spending money. We've got a train station that doesn't uh, service the uh, the airport, uh, with the, the interlink that's there, and we have a longer runway that we don't need. Uh, technology and the free market forces work much better than central planning. Think of all the money we wasted, the people we dispersed, and the communities we disrupted in Warwick by expanding those runways. All right, folks, we are not not done. You want to hear more of this? <laughs> Come back uh, right now for our online bonus segment, Lively Extra. All you have to do is go to ripbs.org lively, and you will hear Mr. Walsh and Mr. Hunt and Mr. Vincent will continue this discussion. For the rest of you, come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. Experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.